0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. It's wonderful to see you all today. I hope you had a, a great weekend of friends, family, fun, and faith the goodness. Uh, I actually, I had a I had a dream last night about today, because I've been prepping this one for a long time. I feel like the Lord kind of gave me this uh, message a while back, and in the dream, we couldn't be here, so we were going to be at the old Alden Road space, uh, and it was like, we were going to be at six o'clock, and we got in there, but we had to set up, like, everything, and, like, Jenna was doing worship, but, like, people started setting up like tables and chairs and I was like, no, that's not what I want. I want chairs and they, I, I don't know if you guys remember how like stressful the chairs were to me specifically. <laughs> it's like, no, they've gotta be right. They have to be right. And, um, and I remember like we couldn't find a lot of things. And then I realized that I had like, c- like hand cut all of these icons and I had forgotten them. And I'm like, do I go home to get them or not? And then it was like 8.30. Uh, and we're still haven't started, but the room's full of people, but none of you were there. It was like a bunch, it was like somebody else's church. I think the Lord wants me to deal with my control issues. I think that's what the whole, the whole thing was about. But, um, anyway, I'm really excited about today. We're going to get real swirly, um, in this message. Uh, we, we, you know, we talk a lot about, um, I think there's a, we're at a unique point in, uh, in the church in our country where. But, you know, we no longer have the luxury of recognizing that we are, we have like a, a, the dominant seat of the table, right? Like we're, we're moving towards becoming a, a post-Christian society. I think most of you recognize that. And for a long time, I think when we had the illusion of dominance, um, which was really more kind of like to be American is to be Christian. That's what it was like, you know, in the kind of 50s. Um, We take it for granted and then our like little tribal things within the Christian household become especially pointed. It's like, well, I'm a Lutheran. It's like, well, I'm a Pentecostal, you know, and we kind of kept our our respective distances. But I think one of the interesting things I think the Lord's doing with the collapse of what I would call Christendom, which is that kind of like everybody's Christian by default thing, um, is that we're beginning to incline our ear to those who are still remaining faithful to Jesus across denominational lines and across traditions and saying, how do you how do you approach the Lord? Like, what helps you to live into that world? And one of the really fascinating things that I've discovered, um, and, and as I speak to friends around the country who are kind of maybe over the, like, just... Trashing the American church thing and going okay, but what's next that is the more interesting conversation to me um, It's that the, the marriage of the inner life of the spirit and the outer life of the spirit So the inner life being what we find in the contemplative traditions in the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church like this this belief in this uh, this interior world that we have uh, to engage with the Spirit of Jesus and um, the formation that comes out of that uh, but then marrying that also with the, out, the outward life of the spirit that we see in the Pentecostal and charismatic renewal traditions. That there's something about the way in which we carry ourselves in the world that brings the spirit of Jesus wherever we go. And when we pray, things happen. And I feel like Pentecostals and contemplatives are having this conversation going, you know, we're not that far apart, um, but we wanna have this total life of the spirit. And we no longer have the luxury of our little, you know, tribal battles, like what gets us close to Jesus, that's what we're going to focus on. And so that's what we're going to be doing today in terms of the, the form. Um, but the content today is Christ the King Sunday. Um, and this is the last Sunday in the church calendar, because uh, we always like to do things different than the world. So <laughs> happy new year. This is it we're done. Next week is the beginning of Advent, um, which we begin telling the story of Jesus all over again. And we kind of focus a little bit more on the Old Testament, uh, the prophecies, the archetypes of Jesus in anticipation of the coming of Messiah. And then we move into uh, Christmas season. We're recognizing the, ad, like the, the coming of Jesus in infant form. Uh, we move into Epiphany and then into Lent and then to Easter. And then you enter into, after Pentecost, what's called ordinary time, which is a really weird thing to call it. You're like, what is this? Eh, it's ordinary. It's fine. <laughs> um, so, we're coming out of ordinary time, and now we're back into extraordinary time. And today is Christ the King. So, this is kind of my thesis for today Christ, the King of the cosmos, is the culmination of all time and space. Every story and experience, past, present, and future, even death and life find their completion in him. That's a sentence, and I'm very proud of it. <laughs> so we're going to be breaking that down today, but I'm going to pray, and we will continue to, to remain in the presence. Um, so Heavenly Father, we testify the truth that you're here, that you are with us. That takes on a, a deeper meaning, even in this coming season of Advent and Christmas, that you are Emmanuel, God with us. That's the, the primary way that you want us to understand who you are. Um, that your steadfast commitment to draw close to us, uh, to become alongside of us, to enter into our stories and to turn curses into blessings. And I pray today, Lord, as we uh, contemplate the glory of Jesus enthroned, that you would give each of us a vision of such awe uh, that it reimagines the supposed ordinary time of our lives. The normal, mundane, everyday things become enlightened in the light of your love. And our lives are transformed. That's why we're here, Lord. We want an encounter with you. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In a former life, I was trained as an art teacher. That's actually my qualification. Uh, I am technically on paper more qualified to teach you how to do watercolors than I am to talk about the Bible. Although I took one New Testament course uh, at Flagler College uh, just because you needed a humanities, and I loved it. It took us three months to realize our professor was actually a Christian. That was how good he was at his job, you know? And he just kind of tore us apart in some of our assumptions. It was a really great class. But one of the things I learned about stu- going to art school is that art is about learning how to see, which seems tremendously obvious to say, um, but there's some profundity to that. In the same way that music is about learning how to listen. And I think that's such a, like, if there's anything that I brought from my former life uh, as an art teacher into my current role, it was it was that. It's, it, that art is about learning how to see. So you go to a, an art museum, how, how many of you have been to like the, the museum we have right here? It's great. The Florida Prize I think is one of the best things that we get all year. Um, you enter into a museum, this kind of like, let's call it a sacred space, it's this other world, um, and you encounter art that transforms the way that you see the piece of art, but it also transforms the way that you see yourself as you're contending with yourself in this space. There's an interaction that happens with art. And the hope of good art is that you walk away changed. So when you go out into the supposedly normal world, it's changed the way that you see the normal world. That's what good art does. And that translates to film, it translates to um, you know, a moving piece of music. Like art changes the way that we see so that the rest of our life is also transformed. And unfortunately, I think a lot of what uh, church is like in our day, the way we've been shaped by our religion is not that we encounter art in a sacred space to be transformed so we see the world differently, but that we go to a certain large, vaguely Christian-owned box store and we buy stuff that is art-adjacent, we'll call it, Um, And we take this stuff that's art adjacent and we put it on the wall of our house because we wanna look like the kind of people who like art and we never look at it ever again. That's how we do religion a lot of times unfortunately. Like we go to a big box and we buy something, right? We consume something that like makes us look like the kind of people who are this way and we come home, we put it on our wall and we never think about it ever again. And I think that this transition that I'm seeing in in the national conversation is like kind of reclaiming more church as the art museum rather than the big box church that just sells you easily consumable pieces of art. Um, Because one of the things that I think has happened, especially within the Protestant household, is that we've lost but are now reclaiming the place of beauty in our appeal to God. Um, so since the Reformation, um, there was a move away from you know, cathedrals and stained glass and some of these things. And some of that was quite valid because it was exorbitant, as a lot of people were re- really poor and starving. Um, but we simplified things in the Protestant house, so we made things so functional that we eventually got to a place where like, the interior of a church is taupe, you know, and the, the chairs are folding, and there's no imagery. And we unfortunately robbed ourselves of the place of beauty to lead us to God. And in fact, a lot of us were trained to be rather allergic to anything that's an invitation to beauty because we feel like beauty is manipulation. Um, I find this a lot in the conversations around worship. They're like, well, worship is so manipulative. I'm like, why? And they say, well, it's got reverb guitars. There was, or in the 90s, the conversation was, there was a chord change. You're trying to manipulate me. What if that chord change is an appeal to beauty? I mean, how many of you know Love on Top by Beyonce? Was she manipulating you? (laughs) Or is it an appeal to beauty, right? Um, But I think there's an opportunity, we're at a point now, you didn't think you were getting a Beyonce reference today. Uh, It's better than, what was it, I made a Nine Inch Nails reference like three years ago. Um, But there's an invitation for us in the Protestant household to reclaim beauty as a way to know God. And that's when we're beginning to incline our ears to our Catholic brothers and sisters, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, and saying, you have a treasure trove that we need. Like That seems to fill this gap, this missing piece of understanding God through beauty. Um, And that's where we find the place of, uh, of iconography, which is kind of what we're gonna be focusing on today. Because icons are a window through which we perceive Christ who is all and is in all. Icons, you know, are something that have been controversial for for various years in, in various denominations. Um, sometimes it's misunderstood as like you're venerating the icon you're praying to an image Um, which I think does happen sometimes it it kind of smacks of the idolatry that we see especially articulated in the Old Testament but rightly understood an I you don't pray to an icon you don't look at it you look through an icon to perceive um, a deeper reality or a deeper truth Um, because I, I, icons are meant to bind together. The word religion, religio, means to bind together. So ligio, like ligament, something that connects two things. Like religio, religion is meant to bind things together. Um, idols tend to rip things apart. They pull us away from our maker. Um, they pull us away from our true humanity as being in the image of God and being generous and they make it about us and it tends to, uh, to break the universe apart. That's how idols work. Uh, but icons bind us up into this oneness of God. And so what we're gonna be doing today um, is a prayer practice called Visio Divina. We've done Lectio Divina before in our church where we meditate on the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us through that. It's kind of the same thing, but we're using imagery. Um, And we let the icons guide our meditation, leading us to union with Christ. So there's kind of three parts to how you do a Visio Divina. number one, the first process, part of the process is purification Um, we all enter into the presence of God with kind of spiritual cataracts on our eyes Um, and this is sin I think if we kind of keeping with this analogy of learning how to see sin isn't so much the actions that's the fruit of sin but sin it's a covering over of our ability to see the world the way that it really is or to see ourselves the way that we really are, or to see God the way that God really is. That's what kind of sin is. It's this covering over. Um, and so as we're entering it, not that we have to like, behave our way into the presence of God, but we need to do the work to kind of take, remove the cataracts from our eyes. Uh, through confession in order to be able to see clearly. Because I think a lot of times when we enter into moments of prayer, meditation, and we've got all that stuff going on in the background, like we're still dealing with like, guilt or shame or you know, whatever it is that's weighing us down, it makes it hard to see. Um, I remember William Paul Young once talking about like imagining you're walking through the woods and you step into like a hornet's nest and the hornets are all over the place and you're kind of five alarm panic and you see someone walking towards you in the woods you will automatically transfer what you're experiencing in that moment to that person. Now that person might be coming to rescue you but you also perceive them as a threat because you're in that moment and that's what we do to God a lot of times is like we're being stung by sin we're in this this panic, this anxiety, guilt, shame, we see the Lord approaching us and we just assume that God is coming to kind of heap upon us even more of that condemnation. And so when we confess our sins, we're kind of inviting the Lord uh, to teach us how to let go of these things so that we can see Him clearly. The next step is called illumination, um, which is where we peer through the veil of the natural world to contemplate Christ. So icons being, in one sense, just a piece of wood or just paint or whatever it might be. Uh, but recognizing that they, they have this sacred potential for us to actually look through them. You know, we talk about in the Celtic tradition, like the thin places in the world where, like, the, the line between heaven and earth is so faint, you can practically see it. Like, I can't wait to meet this uh, uh, um, this new baby, Ren. Wren. Um, John Philip Newell talks about like to gaze into the eyes of a child is to see the face of God, right? Like because there's that purity, that complete lack of ego and you just, you're gazing through the child to perceive the face of God. Um, That's where the role of illumination. And then the third is where we enter into union with God. We're united to God in this loving gaze where we're able just to be in God's presence um, and allow that to be enough. So those are kind of the three steps that we're gonna be practicing today. if, did anybody not get an icon when they walked in? Raise your hand. Um, Eli needs one. Right behind you, Kayla. There's a couple other folks. I want to make sure everybody gets one. Are you on the Are you it? It's going on the screen as well. Yeah, but I also wanted you guys to have one to take home. So we're going to answer in this process: a purification, illumination, and then union. So we're going to pray this prayer together. I'm going to give you one minute just to kind of sit before the Lord and, and confess. And remember confession isn't, it's not shame. Like God's not ashamed of you and he's not ashamed of the things you've done, but he wants you to, to know and to let go in his presence. And that's kind of what confession is. So I want you to kind of get in that posture of openness before the Lord. Um, you know, oftentimes our bodies kind of lead our hearts and minds if you're kind of closed up. Your, your heart is closed up as well, but if we're open, um, we're more likely to enter into that. So we're gonna pray. I'm just gonna give you one minute of silence uh, to confess. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, Almighty God, have mercy on you, forgive you all your sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen you in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep you in eternal life. Amen. And so now we're going to enter into illumination, and uh, the text that I felt like the Lord calling us to today is of the transfiguration. Um, And so that's the the icon you you got when you uh, you entered in. Iconographers, when they go to school to learn this sacred, ancient process, this is actually the first icon that they learn how to paint, or as they call it, to write. uh, Because there's so much in it. So I'm gonna read uh, Matthew 1 through nine. Um, But rather than that being on the screen, I have another variation. There's a lot of variations of this this icon written through history. Uh, But you've also got one there. So I'm gonna read it. And I want you just to allow the words to wash over you um, and and to kind of use that icon as a veil that you're kind of perceiving through it to see the deeper truth of Christ. And then I'm gonna give you three minutes on the other side to consider like, what do you see? What stands out? What makes you curious? Like, what do you feel like the Lord is illuminating to you in this process? So I'm gonna read uh, Matthew 17, one through nine. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but Jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain Jesus commanded them tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead so I'm going to give you three minutes just to contemplate Lord what are you saying what are you doing here was just reminded of uh, another quote by Thomas Keating. He said, silence is God's first language and everything else is a bad translation. Um, and it's another part of this revolution that I see like we're, we're reclaiming the place of silence um, in our adoration of Jesus in the Christian household. So I wanna turn it to you. What, what do you see, what do you perceive, what stands out, what makes you curious, where, where, do, where is your eye drawn um, that causes you just to kind of sit there for a moment. Oh, yes, yes. like holding space, I yeah. don't know. yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, the different reactions, absolutely. Clem. They look like they're dying for some reason. I got news for you, bud, everybody's dying. No, you're right, though, that's good. Sola, did you want to say it? They have no shoes, yes, absolutely. Anyone else? Where the way The like, light is pointing towards heaven and the and men. Yes, absolutely. So the way I want to talk you through this is, we'll, first we'll talk about emo- Moses and Elijah. We'll talk about Peter, James, and John. Um, and then we'll talk about Jesus. So why, why is it in this moment that the, like, Moses and Elijah are the ones to show up? Because what this means symbolically is the law and the prophets are summed up in the Messiah. That's kind of one of the primary things that we're meant to understand in the story and in this icon. Moses representing the law, um, you know, as the traditional writer of the Torah, and then Elijah being the greatest among the prophets. And so basically the whole story up to this point is summed up in Jesus as they appear and they, 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 like, they give adoration to Jesus. They're kind of pointing to him as like, this, this is the best thing that God has to say. And it's like in the beginning of Hebrews where it says, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus, who is the exact representation of his character. You see, like that's what they're saying. It's like everything has been pointing to Jesus as the one true word of God. Now, when we think about Moses, perhaps you remember this story where Moses is leading the Israelites through the desert. You know, he, he has been acquainted with the voice of God since, uh, since the burning bush. But there's this moment where he's kind of up on the mountain and he says to God, he says, show me your glory, which means tell me what you look like. Glory means the manifest presence of God. And if you know this story from Exodus 33, God says, okay, go out and in a moment I'm gonna pass by. Um, and he does, and he just sees God's backside, right? So he, Moses is the one who has seen the back of God. Elijah has a similar moment. You know, he he goes to to um, the competition with the prophets of of Baal. Um, he absolutely whips them, and then he runs off into the woods like a, like a petulant child, and he wants to die, and everything's horrible. And God's like, "Have a snack, take a nap, and I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you." Right? You know this story. Um, and so first there's this, you know, this raging storm, but God was not in the storm. And there's this fire and thunder and all, like earthquake, you know, and, but God was not in the earthquake. And then there's this still small voice that comes and speaks to Elijah. So Moses only saw the back of God. Elijah heard the whisper of the voice of God. And so we see in that what John speaks of later when he says, no one has ever seen God, but If we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Another interesting thing, and maybe you know with the story of Moses, that right at the end, Moses could see the promised land, but because in an act of of anger he disobeys God, um, he dies before he enters into the promised land. We talked about that a little bit Um, last week when we were looking at Hebrews 11 and and that anticipation said none of them received the promise that was to come. So Moses didn't receive the promise. He died before he entered the promised land. And Elijah was actually swept up into heaven. A chariot comes down from heaven, grabs Elijah and takes him off. So Elijah technically never died. Um, He and Enoch share that, uh, that rare distinction. And so what these two characters are here to tell us is that they've only ever had this partial revelation of God. But now Moses and Elijah, and as a symbolic extension, everyone up until the time of Jesus has been gifted this full picture of what God is truly like. And so here we have those who see God those who hear God we have those in Elijah representing the living we have those dead represented in Moses perceiving the source of all life the light of the world who has come and then Peter James and John the story takes place during the feast of the tabernacles um, when Jews would kind of make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they'd set up tents all through the countryside as an act of remembrance. It was, a, it was about remembering the Exodus and it was also kind of like the, the feast uh, of the harvest. And they're remembering the time that they moved through the desert in small tents gathered around the tabernacle, which was the precursor to the temple. Um, so it was like, that's God's house. That's where God lives. God is in that tent and our tents surround it. And we have this moment, you know, where they're up on this mountain during the Feast of Tabernacles they see the glory of Christ. And Peter goes, oh, it's good that we're here. Do you want us to build some tents? Now, Peter's adorable, <laughs> right? Like, it's, it, there's, a, there's a comedic irony to this. To me, it's akin to, like, you ever, have you ever gone to, like, to see your absolute favorite band in the world? And there's... The person standing in front of you has their phone out the entire time. And it's probably vertical, which is the, the living worst, you know. And they're just like this the whole time. Or like they're watching, like doing this through their phone. And I'm like, number one, when are you ever going to watch that video? Are you kidding me? Like, it sounds terrible. You can't really see what's going on. You know, but it's like, it's this human desire we have to capture beauty and then to put it in our pocket, you know. Like, we want to contain truth we want it to work for us so peter's kind of the stand-in for all of us like we have this thing we're actually afraid of what's uncontainable Um, we want something that's more easily digestible and this looks like us so often domesticating jesus to serve our own agendas this is what we do um, in the political sphere, it's what we do in our daily life. Like, Jesus is an accessory that I can carry with me in my pocket, but I kind of control the narrative um, because that Jesus is easier to contain. It's, it's similar to the golden calf um, at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses is conversing with God. And... Um, Moses, his brother Aaron, takes the gold of the people, their valuables, and he mixes them all together and he puts it on a pedestal in a shape and he says, here's your Elohim. He's saying, here's your God. It's the the nice version of the God that's up on the mountain that you're a little bit afraid of, you see. And we do this all the time. But what Peter's invited to recognize is this moment is bigger than his understanding. This is not about you understanding it and therefore containing it. It's about you bearing witness, being invited to awe and wonder. I think awe might be the greatest thing that we need today uh, to save our faith. If we're not in awe of who Christ is, it means that we've probably domesticated Jesus. We've put him in a tent to make him more, to serve our needs. And then in this we see James and John kind of bowled over or looking away. So in this one, they're both looking at Christ, but in the one that you have in front of you, you see John kind of like, uh, and and James both turned away while Peter is pointing. And it's interesting that that some theologians think that what's happening here with John, who we call John the mystic or John the beloved, he's not necessarily turning away in fear, but because he's kind of the apostle of the heart. You know, he's the one who inclined his ear. and, and, and rested his head on the, on the breast of Jesus and heard the heartbeat of God, that, that John is connecting with Christ in his heart. And so he's, he's finding something within himself that's kind of able to embrace this moment without trying to contain it. And then, you know, as Clem rightly pointed out, they don't have shoes on, or sometimes you'll see um, there's a sandal that has fallen off, which is meant to remind us of Oh, Sola, that was you. Clem, you also had a really great point. I think I already covered that, but well done. You guys are definitely the elders of the kids. Um, it, it reminds us of Moses in the burning bush. Take off your sandals, for this is a holy place. And so, when we see that sandal falling off, they're reminded, oh, this this is now a sacred place. And I love the one that I gave you, that we see them, that Peter's kind of pointing up the mountain. James and John are kind of coming down the mountain. That there's this movement up and down as they're kind of perceiving the transfigured Christ. And for us, they represent the church. They represent you and I. They're they are our entry point into the mystery, into the story that we, we are... To, we are to lift our eyes up and to contemplate the risen, transfigured Christ, and then to come back down the mountain into the world and to bring that new way of seeing with us wherever we go. And then finally, we come to Jesus. Um, in, the, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, you know, this is kind of the, would be the biggest scandal of like, you know, we're not supposed to make graven images and that's where a lot of the debate comes. And um, you know, like in in Islam, for example, they take it very seriously not to create images of God or um, of Muhammad. Uh, But for the Orthodox, they always try to work this careful path where the, the divinity of Jesus is always present but kind of hinted at, they use symbol in order to, to reveal the divinity of Jesus where the humanity is fully represented and trying to hold that creative tension between uh, you know, Jesus being fully God and fully man at all points. God, Jesus doesn't flip-flop, it's like here's the moment where Jesus is God and then he's a man and then he's a God and then he's a man. No, so he's, he's God all in all the time and he's man all in all the time. And so the word transfiguration, this whole story, to be transfigured. Transfiguration does not mean I was one thing and now I'm a different thing. Transfiguration means what has always been true is now revealed. What was hidden is now made known. And so when Christ is transfigured, what we're seeing is the fullness of who Jesus has always been. we just never had the eyes to see it. And you can see that in the stories of the disciples as they're kind of wrestling with this idea, is Jesus a man or is Jesus God incarnate? Because they see someone who laughs, who cries, who is hungry, who is thirsty, and they're kind of contemplating like, is this, is this what God is really like? And So the transfiguration is to reveal the hidden nature of Christ that has always been there, um, but now we see him in his glory. I love that it says that his clothes were made white. Okay, his clothes were made white as light. The word uh, cosmos means adornment. That's what the word cosmos means, which is actually why cosmology and cosmetology are actually the same thing, because cosmetology is about adorning oneself, right? I always used to make this joke with people, and they're like, what are you doing? They're like, a cosmetologist. I'm like, you've been to space. (laughs) Give it a moment. Um, but there's something true to that, and so when it says that that he, his clothes are made white, what it's saying is the material world is also being transfigured. Not only is Christ being transfigured in this moment, but the entire world. Christ is adorned with the universe. Our clothes in and of themselves, they're just material, right? Like we've, we've, we've harvested material from the earth and they kind of drape our shape. They take on our shape. And so when Christ is transfigured and it says the clothes are made white, by extension he's saying is the whole cosmos is kind of draped over the reality of Christ. And so every iota of creation is transfigured. Every piece of stardust, every molecule, every atom is now transfigured to become the adornment of Christ, that he is the king of the cosmos. And we see this this glory radiating from Christ. And I love how the radiance, if you notice, moves from dark to light. Those kind of concentric circles almost that moves from the darkness to the right. And what this means is that The reality of Christ begins in the kind of the beyond, the unknowability, the transcendence, the thing that's beyond the thing that we can't quite contemplate, but it moves into the light so that the reality of God in Jesus is made manifest among us. And so in this we see the transcendence of Christ, but also the imminence. And the fascinating thing about divine light, what we see this time and again in scripture, is that divine light blinds us to the supposed normalness of life, of, of life, um, we see you know Paul uh, in his conversion when he was Saul, he is blinded. We see several places where people are blinded by light, and what that means is like we're blinded to just thinking the world is just the way it is. Like time and space are just ambling on, and you know there's not really direction to history, or heaven forbid, we we create the future. Ugh. I mean, how many times are you, are you, the future's in our hands? No, it's not. We are, if it is in our hands, we're in trouble. If it's in Jesus' hands, like, we're going to be okay, you know? Um, but that the divine light blinds us to the mundane, it illuminates the entire cosmos, and it illuminates us to the truth of who God really is. So we're blinded to the world so that we can actually see And then finally, we recognize there's these echoes of Jesus's baptism in this story. If you remember at the beginning of Matthew, when Jesus is baptized and his cousin John's like, I I don't know why you want to do this. Like, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, it's good for us to do this to fulfill the story. And when he comes out of the water, you know, the the clouds part, right? Um, The dove descends and the voice speaks and says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And so God reaffirms in the transfiguration, almost kind of like a a second baptism in a way. We see there's a cloud, there's a voice, and it says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. So God kind of points to Christ and says, no, this he is the fulfillment of everything that I am. And so God even reaffirms Jesus as the true revelation of everything. And so in Christ, we see it sums up all revelation. He sums up life. He sums up death in Moses and Elijah. he is wrapped in creation itself as he is transfigured. And so we enter into the third and final and probably the most difficult part of the Visio Divina, which is to enter into union with God. This is the hardest space to achieve, I think, in 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 uh, contemplative prayer because it's all about sitting quietly and letting ourselves be loved by God. Um and that's really hard. Cuz what do we do? We analyze, right? And even our analysis of scripture, our analysis of uh, an icon, it's a it's it's Peter in the tent. That's what we're doing. It's like I got to understand it, I got to contain it. And I got to do all the analysis and it's like You know, some of the greatest biblical scholars in the world are atheists. They know way more about the Bible than you or I do. They just don't believe it, right? Because there's this whole other way of knowing. In the mystic tradition, we call it uh, the noetic, which is to see with the eyes of the heart. And that's a learned skill. It's really difficult for us to put aside our analysis and our need to understand and contain and control and to just be in the presence of God and to allow ourselves to be loved. And so I'm going to give you a few minutes just to sit quietly. And I invite you to kind of come back. We'll keep that icon on the screen, actually. Um, and you have the one uh, in front of you. But just to sit quietly. And, and I was kind of framing it as this as I was meditating on this. If I was in, if I was in Peter's shoes and I was witnessing the transfiguration of Christ, what, what does this icon, what does this story prompt in me to say to Jesus? What would I want to say to him if he was in front of me? and to allow that to kind of guide my prayer. So that's what I will encourage you to do, is I'm gonna give you four minutes, which I know is a long time, and, and many of you are gonna feel itchy, and like you're failing, and that's okay. Uh, the, the success of this discipline is showing up, and building that muscle. Um, but I want you to take time to pray. Just share what's on your heart with Jesus, and then just kind of sit in that space with him. So I'm gonna give you four minutes to do that. Sometimes I have to exhaust myself talking to God to just get to that place where I can sit. And I think that's okay because God is extraordinarily patient. Did you know that? He's very patient with you. He's not in a rush. He doesn't need you to be in a rush. But to get to that place where we no longer feel like we have to say something to God or that we need God to say something to us, but we can just be in one another's presence, like that's the highest achievement. I want to invite you to stand with me, and we're going to continue uh, to worship and to adore Jesus because this is what draws us up into awe and wonder, Uh, to perceive him as we truly is, not that we might contain him or even understand him necessarily, uh, but that we might bear witness uh, to to his glory. So I'm going to pray. God, who on the holy mount revealed to chosen witnesses your well-beloved Son, wonderfully transfigured in raiment white and glistening, mercifully grant that we, being delivered from the disquietude of this world, may by faith behold the King in his beauty, who with you, O Father, and you, O Holy Spirit, lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever, in Carl Ronner said the Christian of the future will be a mystic or nothing at all. Um, a, myst, a mystic just means someone who encounters God, just the, encounters the mystery of Christ. But his prophetic declaration half a decade ago, it means we no longer have the luxury of just being culturally Christian. In fact, that's rather not in vogue. getting by on just like, I prayed this prayer when I'm eight and I'm good. Um, As Christendom is kind of crumbling around us, we have to question like, what is this about? What are we actually doing? Are we just checking off boxes to be culturally acceptable? Are we just going through the motions because we don't want to disappoint our parents? Or do we actually believe uh, that the Christ of the cosmos, past, present, future of life and death of all revelation is something that we can access today is someone that we can enter into his presence now and believing that by entering into the presence of Jesus we are transformed to look more like him day by day and we become part of that redemptive story. So my encouragement to you this week is to to take that icon home with you and just to sit with it and, and let it be space to capture your attention, to lift you into awe and wonder, to contemplate the risen Jesus, who is the King of the cosmos, that as we ascend that mountain and then descend again, we're constantly being reshaped and reformed, and we become transfigured, we become like him. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at citybeautifulch. We hope you join us again soon.